Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast. We're excited to be with you guys today. Indeed. We're in better moods than last week. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Nothing like a little time under the bridge or whatever that is. So, yeah, let's talk about And some good talks between us, Dad. So, yes. Um, We, well, let's talk about something fun. So, we were talking about. by the way, in case you guys didn't know, we don't actually plan these. Oh. Not a, even a little bit. We no. just sit down and I have a chat with my daughter and she has a chat with her father. Correct. And it's about generally the subject of investing, but sometimes not. And it's kind of our relationship that you're kibitzing on. You're kind of looking over our shoulder where this is where we... You know, because you live in Zurich and I live in Atlanta, it's like, okay, this is where we really get to spend some quality time together, uninterrupted. Absolutely. Our our mutual lives. So, yeah, yeah. I hope you guys don't mind if we just sort of have a conversation and we'll try to make it about investing. That is, after all, what this blog is about. Um, We are (laughs) coming up on our 400th blog podcast. 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 I said blog, didn't I? (laughs) I was thinking about writing a blog. <laughs> I just wrote a blog <clears throat> about China that isn't, it was really me paraphrasing notes that Ray Dalio put out this week about China. Mm. Having watched, um, and Dalio's pretty deep into China. I mean, Hold on. So when you say blog, everybody things. thinks that that's available on the internet. But is this something it that is. you wrote just for your um I don't know what you call them, your members. No, you can you can get it just by going to rule one investing. Oh, cool. Okay. Look up look up the blog. Resources blog. Great. Um and basically I point you to Ray's uh LinkedIn document, white paper, if you will. But it's fascinating that he is kind of laying it out there. I mean, he's been a big China fan for a long time. And his big point here is that some people think that President Xi has done a 180 about face away from anything to do with capitalism into pure Mao again. And here goes China back into the red revolution. And these um, are recent where, comments that he's written. Oh, yeah. These are this week. OK. <clears throat> and the, because they just had this Congress. I don't know if you saw anything about that, but they had their, I guess, five year Congress or something. And um, in that Congress. President Xi replaced everybody who was uh, part of the great opening in the last 20 years Hmm. of China to the West. I have not seen anything about that. I also haven't been paying attention. And he did it it with one guy who is the former president of China that he took. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. He got marched out of there. Marched out. of. That was a number of weeks ago, though. 
Yeah. Yeah. That was the Congress was a few weeks ago. Okay. But Ray's comment on it was just now. Got it. And so his his point of view is it's not a 180. It's a 45 degree turn away from the principles of the last 20 years to a a different set of priorities where the priority is a unification at the top level under she. So everybody's gone that might have a difference of opinion. And everybody's gone, even if they didn't have a difference of opinion, if they were part of the big changes of the last 20 years, which she was also a big part of. Absolutely. But they're gone. All those guys are gone. Um, and by and gone, do we know what gone means? How gone it is? Yeah. I, I don't. Dahlia because just says these guys are going to retirement. <laughs> but I don't know what that means exactly. I imagine if they fought back, they'd be going into something much more serious. <clears throat> so hopefully they're, you know, I, I would guess it's probably dependent on how risky she thinks they are to to his his control. It, it emphasizes, um, doesn't it, how the rule of law is not in charge there. Not in charge over there. Um, so what does Dalio say big, about it? He basically is like, okay, the big change is everybody, we're, they're unifying under she to the direction he wants to go, which is um, backing away from <clears throat> from the excesses of capitalism where rich people get richer and the poor people get poorer. Uh -huh. That isn't going to happen in China. It's going to be common prosperity. Hmm. So the big companies, the big tech companies, the Babas and so on, are probably uninvestable now. He Ray doesn't say that. I'm saying that. Okay. Um, but he makes a point that if if their goal is common prosperity <clears throat> and the way to get to that goal is to take the profits of large companies mm -hmm. one way or the other, then my conclusion would be those are uninvestable. You don't you don't have any idea what the future holds other than probably stasis. They're, he's going to be allowed to exist. Dalio's saying that he's guessing that they're going to start taking the profits of large public companies or that's already been happening. He doesn't talk about it directly. Oh, okay. So uh, that's that you. Is already happening. Yeah, that's already happening. Um, for example, Alibaba found it wise to commit $14 billion to local uh, initiatives in the area that their headquarters are in. <laughs> yeah. They found it wise to do that out of the goodness of their hearts. Yeah. And it was after she took a real hard look at them and really criticized them severely and put Jack Ma essentially in public scrutiny and private prison. Right. And uh, yeah. So it's very uh, quick. Saudi rounding up the top 50 richest people and putting them in the Ritz under hotel arrest for however, what was that like four or five months for some of them. Mm -hmm. And then steadily they started to say that they had gotten their money poorly and badly and owed a lot of it to the state. Yes. It's like that. Yeah. So that's that's and a hard that'd be a hard country to invest. That's not with. a good comparison, Saudi and China. You don't no, want to be compared to Saudi. No. You don't. But I don't know that Charlie Munger would change his opinion a great deal. I mean Charlie's view was very much in tune with the previous leader of China, um, who argued that, um, who said basically about capitalism, white cat, black cat, 
Mm-hmm. What does it matter? We just wanted to catch mice. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I think she is not in that white cat, black cat world. He's pretty much in the whichever cat the communists are in and use capitalism as a means of attaining common prosperity. So I think what they see is this 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 uh, system that is capitalistic at, at some level, which promotes prosperity. I think that what Dalio says is the Chinese know that that's required for prosperity. They, they see that the history of communism without that is just poverty. Yeah. And so um, to get common prosperity, you, you know, you can have common, we all have the same thing and none of us have anything, or you can have common prosperity. In order to have common prosperity, you need capitalism. You need people to have some incentive to perform. And so I think Dalio sees that sticks around. But so Dalio's conclusion, it, just to be clear, is that what China's still somewhat investable? He doesn't conclude anything. He just laying out what he sees the facts are. Okay. Which makes this very interesting. And I gather from what he sees the facts are that the Chinese are very interested in having the base be very entrepreneurial. Hmm. And I think Chinese are very entrepreneurial. Oh people. my God. Like we were talking last episode of the episode before about different countries being good at entrepreneur. I can't believe I didn't say China. Mm-hmm. The Chinese are incredible at entrepreneurship. Yeah. I think the world would agree. And so if that's the case, then hey, we need we need our Chinese people to do their thing, but we don't need them to become Alibaba. We don't need them to become these monsters that then start to take on a political life of their own. That have uh, power we, because they, they have, have so power. much money. Right. We're stripping And worldwide power. power that's separate from China. Yeah. And probably will allow you to become, um, you know, significantly up there in the multimillionaire status. But maybe we don't need billionaires because they get ridiculously uh, uh, arrogant in, uh, toward politician, politics. I'm guessing here, but I think this is... Likely, if China can somehow bridge it so that you do have entrepreneurship and growing technologies and, and you know, building things for the people of China. Um, also, China is becoming much more insular. It's turning back in on itself mm. and mas- massively nationalistic. It is all he said. There's basically three things going on that I don't remember all three of them. But one of them is that uh, we need to show our power now. We've been hiding it. And now we're going to show it. Um, Dalio also gives a major warning, I think particularly to Republicans in the United States, but to anyone in the United States that thinks it's wise to take the side of Taiwan and Taiwanese independence. Dalio stated emphatically that if the Republicans were to pass a law supporting the independence of Taiwan as a nation, it would be tantamount to a declaration of war against China. Hmm. that's heavy duty. So, uh, and the Republicans are busy trying to put together a bill that does exactly that right now. So Ray's view is there's a much higher risk of a shooting war with China today than there's ever been. And it's avoidable, but not if you do certain things. If you do certain things, then it's not avoidable. Hmm. Because they're they're out to show their power, they're out to become a regional and global power, and let people know it, and they will push back hard, and you know I think 
I, th I think Dalio has such a good grip on world affairs. I, I think we have to listen to him very closely. So what does that mean for everybody out there listening to the podcast? Right? Yeah, well, so you're saying we have to listen to him very closely, but I'm not quite sure what he's, and I haven't read it. What is he saying with all of this? He's saying, like, what I hear you saying is be careful, be wary. Um, I think that's what he's saying. I mean, he's not telling you how to do it. I, this is mostly Dalio doesn't tell you how to do anything. Mostly. He just well. puts together <laughs> realities in the world. Have you read the principles then, book? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have. That book is nothing but him telling you what to do. It's well, great. Absolutely. I recommend Principles by yeah, Ray it's, Dalio. It's, really it's good, enormous it? and uh, an excellent bathroom book. Not in a well, bad way. <laughs> so let me, quote, let me quote Dalio with regard to investing in China. In the way where Said it's little snippets. Okay, go ahead. He said, imagine if investing or producing in China or buying Chinese goods became politically like it is for doing those things with Russia. Right. Are you follow, following that? Because right now in the United States, if you were doing those things with Russia, you got crushed. You can no longer do those things. You can't produce in Russia. You shouldn't be buying Russian goods and you certainly shouldn't be investing in Russia. And basically the, the politics the politicians crushed investments in Russia, turned them to zero. Mm -hmm. So no one should, just what Ray says, no one should doubt that that's a possibility, even if the U.S. government doesn't make it happen. Ah. It happen by political will across the country. Well, that like is a severe warning. Yeah. Yep. And then he says further, I have heard that in a new Republican-controlled house, there is some possibility there will be a bill passed supporting the independence of Taiwan, which would be for the Chinese tantamount to a declaration of war and would very likely lead to some sort of military conflict with China. Okay. So here's a couple of things. Take Dalio real seriously. If you see that the Republicans are going to push through a bill declaring the independence of Taiwan, get the hell out of the stock market. Because if there is a shooting war with China, the stock market's going down like a brick. So there you go. There's a great, big, huge red flag to pay attention to. Absolutely. I'm thinking through Want my investments while we talk. Yeah. Well, right, here's a little more. A summary of President Xi's address to the 20 party Congress. Three policy statements. One, China faces a dangerous storm ahead. So he's preparing the country for battle against a storm. Um, second, by 2050, China will be a regional and global power. So 25 years. And third, economic policy will shift more to the state and less to the market. Hmm. And then he says there's three changes to the regime. Number one, less the regime will be less diverse in opinions and more unified under Xi. Mm. Number two, it's interested in showing power rather than hiding it. And three, it's committed to using state power to produce both security and common prosperity. And it's a 45 degree shift away from where they've been going. So, man, it's, it's fascinating. I'm glad you brought and it up kind of, because I think you're really elucidating one of the maybe the biggest unknown for investors, I think. 
like if this were an annual report on investing, <laughs> like the number one risk category would be what are Chinese consumers going to do? And maybe number two would be how is Chinese manufacturing going to go? Because every company I look at, and like I said, I was just going through the Rolodex of my companies in my head. Every company I look at either sells massively to China or manufactures massively in China or both. And the big question that I, I, I've, I mean, I've been thinking about it for years, but not in such a pinpointed way, is what happens if the Chinese consumer just stops buying? And I will tell you, it would be massive. It would be a worldwide calamity. Why? Why do you think it'd be that big of a deal? Because so many of the companies that I've looked at that are consumer-facing worldwide companies mm-hmm. have 40-50% of their sales in China. Not all companies, nothing like that, but a lot of the companies I've looked at. I think because I tend to look also at companies I use, and those tend to be, you know, clothes, makeup, um, fashion, sort of fun, light, consumery companies. So this is a huge change, right? This is gigantic change over the last 10 years that the Chinese consumer has become so influential. Huge. So I'll give you a case in point. Mm-hmm. Hermes, incredible company, French company listed on the French Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, not American in any way. And the U.S. is one of their big markets. And I'm going to not remember the exact numbers here on their buyer, buying, but uh, the U.S. is one of their big markets. But I, as an American, am used to the U.S. being like number one market for most companies and you hear so much about Hermes. Hermes, for people who don't know, is um, the company that makes handbags. Traditionally, they make the Birkin, they make the Kelly, and then they make a lot of other bags. They make clothes, which most people don't even know. They make furniture, which most people don't even know. They just came out with a whole makeup line, um, which is putting them more out to smaller consumers. And in general, their, um, their reason for being is to make with the absolute highest quality artisan products uh, based in leather because that's their tradition, but also non-leather goods. And Mm. I just, I have not invested in this company. Um, I've written about it a fair bit to my invested practice group because I just like, as far as my practice, like have no clue what to do with it. And so this is what I think about when it comes to China, because this is, they're a company that, and this is slightly wrong, but let's say 50% of their sales is in China. And the reason that there are articles being written, if you Google Hermes, you're going to get a bunch of articles about how buying a Birkin is a better investment than buying a stock or anything in the stock market. And that's because Birkins have gone up in uh, price. Gosh, what is it? They've like, gone up something like 500%. I don't know. It's gone from, you can buy a Birkin in the store for eight, nine, ten thousand dollars um, depending on the manufacturer, on the um, leather. And you can buy a Birkin online right now, probably for 30,000. Mm. So it's the price of a car, which is 
completely psycho. And I say that as somebody who loves handbags with every fiber of my being. But they sell massively to China. And the reason their stock has gone up so much also in the last 10, 20 years is one, a lot of good reasons. They've expanded the company massively. The guy who runs the company, I personally think is excellent and really trying to take Hermes into like the next level. Um, It's a family run company and he cares deeply like a founder would about maintaining the quality of the company and of the family name. And I love somebody like that running a company for me Mm -hmm. Me because they have so much personally invested in how that company does. And it's not just him. It's his entire extended family. And um, in, I'm going to go off on a thing about Hermes because I love it so much. Um, (laughs) In uh, the year that I forget, but let's say 15 years ago, roughly uh, LVMH. Uh, Louis Vuitton, Moet, Tennessee, which is run by Bernard Arnault, tried to hostily take over Hermes and secretly bought up a bunch of stock and then Mm. filed a takeover bid. And the only way that they could reject this thing was if, so because now it's been like four or five generations of Hermes family, all the various cousins and second cousins and third cousins all have little bits of stock of ownership that's been passed down to them from their parents. And so the stock was really spread out amongst the family. And so what the CEO did is gather everybody together in a room and ask them very nicely if they would give him voting power over their shares in a trust so that he could vote the family block and be able to defeat this takeover bid. And by doing that, all of these various cousins and second cousins and third cousins would be unable to sell their shares for, I can't remember if it's locked up 10 years, 20 years, there's a lockup period for a very long time, let's say 20 years. So that is a very big deal when you're somebody who grew up probably knowing you have this stock, it's kind of like your little safety pocket, maybe you have a little bit of income every year that you depend on, And they would not be able to sell. So that is a huge amount of trust put into this person. And they overwhelmingly voted to create this trust and hand over voting power of their shares to him so that he could block the takeover bid with massive confidence from the family. Like it was not a debate. And wow, exactly. Wow. Right. Like think of any family. (laughs) Think of our family. If we like had shares in a company, we all wanted to, somebody was asking us to give, we would have a debate, you know, like the fact that they all did that just tells me in addition to everything I've read about him just shows that they have a lot of confidence in him and that he um, plans to be there for the long haul and, and really has the good of the company and the reputation of the company at heart. That does not mean in any way that he's like the world's greatest CEO or he's going to make the right decisions or anything like that. I have no clue what they're going to do in the future, but it really spoke to the confidence that the family had and they put their money where their mouth was. So they defeated the takeover bid. LVMH got to go shove it, which I loved. And (laughs) because there's just too much conglomeration in the fashion industry. And, um, 
And Hermes remains independent and they have flourished beyond. And so (laughs) to get back to why the stock has done so well, it's partially because of great decisions the company has made to expand carefully without harming their production process. They could be selling twice, three times, four times the number of bags they actually sell, but they don't because they don't want to increase their production process in a way that would harm the quality and thus the reputation of the brand. And I believe that when they say that, by the way, a lot of people don't believe it, but I do because I've seen how they have been expanding and they really are trying to expand their production. So it's partially that. And then it's partially that their market has gone from being first essentially just French, you know, a hundred years ago, and then Europe And then America, as they developed these incredibly popular handbags, the Kelly and the the Birkin in the 80s, I want to say. And and then China. Suddenly, here's this huge new market with tons of cash where prestige and having a hard-to-get name brand is everything. And that has been the most incredibly fast-growing market for them, most lucrative. And as older markets, Europe and the U.S., fashion consumers are tending to be a little bit more like, we don't like name brands, you guys are too big businessy, and we like, you know, up-and-coming designers, we want to be, we're sort of like post coolness um you know we're, we're too good for Hermes like Hermes is so basic you know like that kind of vibe China still thinks that Hermes is fantastic and is willing to spend massive amounts on it and I think also by the way Kanye West has really damaged a little bit of their shine and that's been interesting to watch I can detail that in great detail if you want i'm sure you have no idea what kanye's been doing anyway that's my hermes spiel i'll stop talking give me give me again the percentage of hermes sales that are in in china no i mean what i i don't remember that that you're gonna make me like say that i don't remember i'm gonna say 40 to 50 percent china okay that's that's quite quite it's huge it's huge Um. so it's enough that if that disappears, that company changes drastically. Hmm, let me just check something here. Okay. China, 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 rest of... Are you looking it up? Huh. Yeah. So we're going to sit here while you... Asia know. Pacific, Asia Pacific, 47%. There you go. Yeah, so not just China. I mean, that obviously would include Singapore, Japan, also very large markets. Yeah. But, But and I don't have my notes in front of me, but I've broken it out into China and other countries, and it was huge. Hermes, 15% of their revenue is is from Europe. I would have thought most of it. Well, the rest of Europe, 15. France is nine, so it's 20. France, they break France out, yeah. Yeah. The Americas are 16. And I know, Asia, and that's, that blew me away, Japan, because you think about how big, as an American, you think about how big Hermes is in the U.S., yeah, yeah. and I was literally, like, I was going through that document, and I was thinking, like, well, the U.S. has probably got to be, like, 25%. Not even close. Ooh. Not even close. Not even close. Wild. Not even close. Um, I wonder if LVMH is the same. Uh, Absolutely. 
Asia. I'm gonna. I haven't looked it up, but I'm gonna say absolutely. Just knowing Asia, how apart that. From Japan. Asia, including Japan, is 42. So Asia without Japan is mo- probably mostly China. It's 35 percent of LVMH sales. Yeah. So check it out. I've got. I've got. So some that's other stats. actually a lot lower. Yeah, it's a lot lower. That's strange. I've got some other stats that I think are fascinating. Okay. Um, Hermes is at 47. Apple is at 25 percent, mm-hmm. which is stunning. Is that Coke? Why is that stunning? Guess, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, just so I didn't realize that the Chinese were buying so many high-end iPhones, but they are. Oh yeah. Coca-Cola seven percent, Microsoft two percent, Yum fifty percent. Fifty percent. Wow. Of Yum sales are in China. That's amazing. Starbucks, I would have thought it's way higher. It's seven percent. So there's a there's I think what we could probably say is there's a few companies where they're really heavily camped out in China, and then there's yeah. a lot of companies that are not. Yeah, so of course there's a lot of companies hit. that are not. And that's it's why I was be very saying uneven how it hits. I yeah, think, and that's why I was saying like because I've been looking at like I've been sick, so I've been looking at like fun stuff. And fun stuff for me is <laughs> fashion, makeup, shopping, light, light things. And in that realm, um, and plus I'm like super into handbags, so I've educated myself. <laughs> I know you're super into handbags. I know. I can now pretty much, I would say, I'm, I'm, I'm like 90, 90%, I could authenticate a authentic Hermes handbag compared to a fake Hermes handbag. Because that's another thing going on, is this massive knockoff industry it's fascinating fascinating you know, i was just knockoffs reading, um, not Netflix's. i mean software is a different thing but i'm talking about yeah i know you know you Where make something with it. you copy chanel and you put chanel on it yeah and then everybody goes and buys that because it's exactly the same yeah but netflix is basically warning that the piracy factor is, is growing and becoming really significant globally. Like the, their films are being pirated off of, you know, I mean, people just reach out and copy them and then turn right around and put them out on their distribution system online. So tough to compete with free. Yeah. Super cheap, right? Absolutely. It's so interesting, man. And the world is getting more nationalistic by the minute. Also, to the point of Ray Dalio's analysis that he's been making for the last couple of years, is that as you reach the sort of wretched excesses um, where the rich have gotten richer and the and the poor have gotten poorer, followed by uh, that are often promoted by government policies. Uh, with best intentions, like lower interest rates so people can buy a home and you end up with a huge real estate bubble and yeah. the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Yeah. Um, lower interest rates so that people will keep their jobs and businesses can borrow money easily. And what happens is real estate prices go through the roof and pretty soon only the rich can afford a house and only people and the people are renting from hedge funds. Yeah, right. Up houses all over the country. Yep. Um, and colleges have continued to increase their tuitions because government money is free. 
You just borrow it, whatever the tuition is, borrow it, and we will lend it to you because you have to pay it back. And so colleges have gotten to be stupidly priced relative mm-hmm. to what people can earn after they leave college. So w- what has happened when you go through this kind of excess created by the wealth factor, the desire of the government to level the playing field results in market distortions and and you end up with a big problem where the rich get richer because they have assets and the poor get poorer because they don't. And all of a sudden saving makes no sense and uh, robotics are taking away jobs as well as offshoring and people get angry and start to have real serious problems. And so you end up with populists like Donald Trump that come out and effectively are talking to the little guy and saying, I'll fix this, I'll, I'll make tariffs I will, you know, bring companies back. I'll get your jobs back. I mean, they're just populists who are going to going to appeal to the people who feel they're being damaged by these by these policies or by the excess of capitalism and China's going through the same thing. Essentially looking at this excessive wealth that's happened and saying no 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 no. They're cracking down. They crack down much faster than capitalism does. Capitalism gets around to it, but it's not pretty. Yeah, it, it, right. it comes at you in waves and right. we will see more and more of these waves coming as they keep trying to get inflation under control. So it, it it's really fascinating to me that China is saying very clearly we're entering into a storm. It's going to be very stormy ahead. So if you think of the metaphor, imagine you're a ship out at sea and what you see coming that's unavoidable is a giant storm. That means it's going to be wave tossed. You have to batten the hatches it's about the survival of the ship. It's not about how wonderful life is for all of us on the boat. It's about surviving this horrible storm that we're about to enter. And that metaphor, I think, is kind of how China sees the future. I think Dalio sees the future the same exact way. I think he sees we're going into a big storm. and It's going to be batting down the hatches. That means nationalism everywhere. That means... Uh, the destruction of currencies as governments try to fight this off. It means a potential change of the international uh, financial order and could be the change of the international political order where you have the rise of a major power being held back in some way by a major power that had global, uh, you know, basically just own the own the global political situation for 50 years or 60 years so i think we're in for a storm i think we're in for a big storm actually and i think that you guys should be thinking really seriously if you aren't already about managing what you have through this storm because big storms can create great opportunities yeah enormous opportunities so yeah that's what we sort of do on this podcast is, is help you think about what's coming and what you can do about it for yourself. So maybe we should take that as a kind of a theme for a little while here. Let's have a theme be the big storm that's out there. What will happen in that big storm and what can you do to take really not just to batten down the hatches, but to come out of it really riding high. How do you like that, Danielle? That sounds great. Is that not what we've been talking about? Well, let's just, I don't know that we've really, maybe that's what we've been doing, but I think let's get, let's get down into it. I mean, we need to be talking about asset diversification, for example. We don't talk about that very much. It's like by the market. 
But in a big storm, maybe that's not the best way to go. Maybe in a big storm, what you might want to do is to spread things out across asset groups. Well, this is news to me. We're proposing. All right. Yeah, this is sort of, this is very much Ray Dalio 101, actually. It is. You're right. Start looking for So buckets. I'm very surprised to hear it from you because I have not heard it before. It's just that you just, we just don't know what's going to happen. We just don't know what's going to happen. And so if we look back in history and see what has happened in the past, we might be able to get a clue. And the best guy at that that I know of is Ray Dalio. So let's, let's dive into this next time. Good okay. Thing. And by this, you mean you've got a plan because I've got no clue. Four buckets. Four buckets. Love a structure. Fantastic. <laughs> Until <Four> next <laughs> time. <laughs> Let's see where we're going to put our gold and silver and And then can I ask my jewels. big questions that I was going to ask this that, time? That, that we don't have. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> then, you want to ask the big question then? Yeah. Or after the four buckets? I don't know. Find out what okay, the buckets well, we'll are. Okay, we'll see where this goes. All right. Very cool. Thanks, everybody. Don't be don't be afraid out there. We've got a plan. Well, I don't. So I hope you do. Well, the first part, I think I think you have a good plan. You're in Switzerland. That is a very good place to be. Yeah, that's true. But that wasn't planned. (laughs) It's a good job on you. And the rest of us will be joining over there. As soon as the Swiss let us in. Or maybe we can just cross the Swiss border and immediately ask for sanctuary. Oh God, no! Work. No, no, they that'll don't like work. that. No, no. Come on, that'll work. Works you don't, here. you don't mess around with Swiss immigration authority. This is not America. I'm sorry to They're tell you. Irrational. Amazing. Imagine <laughs> that. All right. Good talk. Thanks, guys. everybody. <laughs> Bye. Play. See ya. Hi guys, thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding, they really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And really important, it's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.